and welcome to episode 7 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. We're podcasting from the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing. The featured guest on today's program is Bob Edgar, professor of African studies at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Bob is the author, with Hilary Sapphire, of African Apocalypse, the story of Nonteta Nkwenkwe, a 20th century South African prophet published in 1999 with Ohio University Press. And he's also the editor of Crossing the Water, African Americans and South Africa, 1890 to 1965, a monumental documentary history that he is co-editing with Robert Vinson and David Anthony. This multi-volume set is also forthcoming with the Ohio University Press. Professor Edgar is also the editor of An African American in South Africa, based on the travel notes of Ralph Bunch, the 1950 Nobel Peace Laureate who traveled to South Africa for three months in 1937, and of Freedom in Our Lifetime, the collected writings of Anton Muziwake Lembede, the great African nationalist from South Africa. Bob, welcome to Michigan State University. Perhaps we could start by uh, you just explaining or telling us a little bit about this amazing project at Howard University uh, about these linkages between African Americans and South Africa. Well, Peter, this goes back a number of decades. Uh, it was always in the back of my mind that this would be a topic that would be worth pursuing at, at some later stage. And another historian, David Anthony, got involved in the story of Max Jurgen, who was a YMCA missionary in South Africa in the 20s and 30s. And he also was interested in the topic. So in the late 1990s, we got together and decided that we would do this full-blown project on collecting primary documents on the linkages between uh, black South Africans and African Americans. And so with some funding uh, from the uh, National Historical Publication and Records Commission, uh, we were able to hire a, a full-time uh, researcher, Robert Vinson, who has now joined our uh, uh, staff as one of the collaborators on the project. And so we began tracking down leads on all sorts of documents from uh, personal papers to newspaper articles. We did a survey of all the black press in South Africa and the United States uh, between the 1890s and the 1960s. And so the end result is that uh, we have now a collection of about 5,000 documents and we're going to be publishing several volumes uh, comprising about 10% of these documents uh, through Ohio University Press in the near future. And I suppose one of the interesting components of this connection has been Garveyism, and uh, I seem to remember Robert Vinson was one of your students, and he wrote an excellent PhD on Garveyism in South Africa. Um, and part of this material has been published in the Garvey Papers, uh, edited by Robert Hill. So, what is different about the material you've collected? Well. We worked quite closely with Robert and, and when he was collecting his materials for the Garvey papers. And so uh, one of the things we've had to do is, is to decide uh, whether there would be any overlap between what he's already published in the several volumes on Africa in, in his series or 
just go with different things. And so there will be a little bit of overlap, but we've also identified materials that uh, have surfaced since we were working with, with Robert Hill on his, his collection. And so I think we're going to have enough new material that uh, it will add to what has already been published. Right. And well, who were some of these African-Americans who went to South Africa and how early did they travel there and what sort of things did they get up to? Well, you know, it's interesting. You can go back uh, as far back as the 18th century when there were African-American sailors on whaling ships uh, who came to the South Atlantic. And uh, there was one uh, in the early 18th, 19th century, rather, who uh, stopped off in the Western Cape. Uh, there's actually a little island uh, off the uh, very near Cape Town that is named after him. And uh, we've been able to identify uh, some material on him because he was a well-known figure in Rhode Island before he went off on his sailing ventures. Uh, we also have uh, people who came to South Africa in uh, the mid-19th century. Uh, so, for instance, right after the Civil War, uh, there was a fellow who was known as Yankee Wood uh, who came to South Africa, and he ends up in the Eastern Cape in Transkei, uh, establishes a chain of hotels. Uh, he lives in, in Cockstad in the Eastern Cape, uh, but he becomes a very prominent figure there. And uh, more recently, some of his descendants uh, who live in England have actually contacted us because they came across our uh, project. But you talk about the range of African Americans who, who came over. Some were sailors, some were adventurers, but the primary ones that we know are people who came as uh, missionaries and as teachers. Uh, you do have the odd traveler like Ralph Bunch who came in 1937. Uh, and before him, S.E. Robeson in 1936, uh, people who traveled around South Africa. So it's a range of people, but they tend to be focused, the, most of them, on religion or education. And just sort of going on a tangent with this American connection to South Africa, you yourself, as you were telling us in a seminar today, became part of this connection in a very curious way when you were investigating millenarian churches and prophetess, non tata. So maybe you could just briefly outline that story in, in, in the sense that you're not an African-American, but as an American, you're sort of been, become part of South African folklore now. <laughs> <laughs> well, non tata was a, a woman prophet in the Eastern Cape who began preaching after the uh, First World War. And in the 1920s, uh, the Garvey movement uh, was becoming very popular out in the rural areas and even the urban areas in the Eastern Cape and Transkei. And uh, Wellington even came to, to visit Nonteta at, at one point. And so uh, Wellington Budalese was the fellow who was preaching that African Americans were coming to uh, liberate South Africa. He was a Garveyite. And so that message influenced Nonteta, and so she began prophesying that the Americans, very broadly, were coming to South Africa, but she was talking about it in terms of her church group, that they were going to do something miraculous uh, someday for, for her people. Well, I get involved in the story much later uh, in the 1970s when I first came across this group and started uh, interviewing people about their history 
But later on in the 1990s, uh, I got involved in uh, returning her remains, which were buried in Pretoria uh, by the government, which had committed her to a mental asylum. But we were able to locate her remains in a cemetery in Pretoria. And when they were returned, her church followers uh, told me in a meeting that uh, they thought I was uh, fulfilling prophecy back from the 1920s because here I was, this American, who was doing something miraculous uh, for them. And indeed it was miraculous, I'll, <laughs> I'll admit to that, but uh, I was really doing what I thought was good social science in terms of tracking down her uh, remains in Pretoria. Bob, if I could go back to something really interesting you touched on earlier, uh, and that is the connection between African Americans uh, and South Africa. It seems that when you hear the term Zulu, you know, people's eyes light up, even though they may not know anything about South Africa or about Zulu or uh, anything at all related to the continent. Um, in your article with Robert Vinson on uh, Zulus Abroad, uh, you mentioned that African Americans had different views of the Zulu people they were encountering in various contexts, but that they were using this Zulu identity that they were seeing for their own profit as impersonators, um, and also to shape a new identity in, in America. Have you come across any evidence in your work to suggest that there were non-Zulus in South Africa, black South Africans, who also did these kinds of things? Well, in a sense, Wellington Budalese, uh, who was Zulu, who actually uh, did a, uh, an identity makeover and made himself into African-American, so he was going uh, the other way. I think we see this all the time in South Africa, people changing their identities, uh, depending on what, use, uh, what usefulness it can be to their, uh, to their lives. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm getting the, the gist of your, your question, but during the apartheid uh, days, it was, it was very common for people to change their uh, ethnic identities if it could advance them uh, even marginally within the apartheid system. I remember in this uh, homeland uh, called Kwakwa, which is in the Free State, uh, there used to be a lot of farm workers who were expelled from uh, farms, white farms in KwaZulu-Natal, and they would go to this homeland to be Sutuized, and then with the Sutu identity, they could find jobs easier up on the on the uh, Vidvatersrand. So that became one way in which people's identities were being manipulated, so to speak, to advance themselves. What about the Americans themselves? How did they represent Zulus here? That's a fascinating question. Um, you know, we're, there's a lot of talk about uh, the representations of King Shaka, and I think much of the academic literature has, has focused on that. But as we began collecting material for our uh, project, we began finding a lot of evidence about how Americans were representing Zulus from the late 19th century. Uh, and there seems to have been a, a kind of fascination among both whites and blacks with uh, Zulu and the image that they uh, projected. And so in popular culture, you've got uh, a number of songs that were composed during that period. We have sheet music from several do dozen songs in which Zulu, the name Zulu uh, features. Uh, but we trace this not to Shaka, but to King Hachwayo, after the Anglo-Zulu War, and that's really when the Zulus appeared 
on the front pages of American newspapers, and then, of course, in England as well. But that's where the Zulu imagery really began to filter into American culture. And so from that time onward, from, let's say, 1880 onwards, you have a number of people being uh, affected by this. So, for instance, uh, there was a showman by the name of the Great Farini. He was a uh, Canadian. And he brought over a group of uh, what he called friendly Zulus to the United States in 1880, put them on exhibition in uh, New York City at a museum, and then he was hooked up with P.T. Barnum, and then he went off on uh, circuses around uh, the Northeast and Midwest. And so the name Zulu became really popularized in the United States. And so among both whites and blacks, you had a range of ways in which Zuluness was being appropriated. And so uh, you had a number of people who uh, went around posing as, as Zulus, and most often they would pose as children or descendants of King Hachwayo. Uh, and in one case, we have a, a figure who was uh, operating around the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, after the First World War, and he was giving lectures to schools and so forth about uh, Zulu history. And of course, all of this was concocted. Uh, and the problem came when he died in the, the 1930s because his family was told by him that he was Zulu, and after he died, they went to the South African Embassy to find out who he really was, and they had no idea uh, of where he came from. But we had any number of people who were posing as Zulu royalty during this period. And you can imagine in the African-American community, this became a very favorite technique for getting slightly better treatment uh, mm. in, in the segregated U.S. And in a much later period, in the 50s and 60s, uh, African princes were a very common feature of American life. Uh, many American African-Americans posing as as African princes, so it was on the same uh, order. We also had a, a group uh, that performed in Mardi, Mardi Gras mm -hmm. called the Zulu Crew, and they were formed around 1915, but they were really a uh, more of a, uh, they were waging kind of a sarcasm on white society, and they, but they dressed in a very bizarre way with grass skirts and uh, uh, a lard can crown that the, so they would crown King Zulu at every Mardi Gras uh, parade. And there's still echoes of that in New Orleans today, I think, with Zulu dance groups. And well, the Zulu crew is still yeah, operating yeah. there. Mm. What's interesting about them was that they were generally regarded as kind of a slapstick group up through the 40s, but during the Civil Rights era, we started picking up evidence of the black press attacking them for... Uh, be becoming a kind of derogatory symbol of, of, of blackness uh, because they were not really portraying Zulus in a very positive way. We also had a semi-pro uh, Negro League baseball team called the Zulu Cannibal Giants uh, that were formed in the 1930s. And uh, the Giants were made up of uh, Negro League players and in the off-season, they would barnstorm around uh, the country. And similarly, they would have this, uh, they were really a clown team. They, they, they did perform or play serious baseball, but before the games, they would clown around. And so uh, you can still get uh, shirts and so forth from the Zulu, and hats from the Zulu Cannibal Giants. 
Right. And of course, another more recent important connection was the anti-apartheid movement, where groups like TransAfrica and others really took up the cudgels on behalf of the oppressed peoples of South Africa. And you yourself, I think, were involved in the broad anti-apartheid movement. I remember a book you edited on sanctions. Uh, well, it's interesting, Peter, in that respect, because uh, we did, Robert Vincent and I did this research on the Zulu representations, and we were very interested if these representations had carried over to the modern period, and if they had had any kind of effect on the anti-apartheid movement. In other words, uh, would people have been more sympathetic, for instance, to Chief Budalese's Nkata movement because of this earlier imagery? And it was very interesting, and we got a consistent, very consistent an answer from African-American anti-apartheid activists, and they said uh, there was no carryover because they, they understood Chief Budalese on a very political level, and so this issue of imagery didn't enter into it uh, uh, in their case. But I wonder if they would answer the same way today with Jacob Zuma poised to assume the presidency of South Africa. And, uh, you know, he's made this kind of uh, uh, neo-traditional Zuluness a uh, sort of platform for himself. Uh, what do you think? Well, uh, there are two answers to that. I mean, first, beyond Jacob Zuma, uh, back in the mid-1980s, you had this film that was released, this epic blockbuster uh, on Shaka. And that actually has had a tremendous impact on American culture and on, on African Americans. And it's shown, of course, all the time on TV. So there's, in a sense, been this resurgence of uh, identification with the Zulus and, and Shaka Zulu. Uh, Jacob Zuma, I think people are still getting a handle on uh, because there are some aspects of him. Uh, he certainly. Uh, uh, there are elements of Zulu traditionalism in, in Jacob Zulu, but on the other hand, uh, he's the leader of a, of a modern party. And I'm not sure people are identifying him as Zulu as opposed to being an ANC leader, in the United States at least. Perhaps one final question, Bob, uh, moving across the border into neighboring Lesotho. You've also done some marvelous historical detective work there on uh, political movements and also uh, biographical work on exiles from South Africa, which I guess took you up into the mountains, mm. to curious byways. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that research. Well, I was interested in uh, several of the South African exiles who had uh, moved to Lesotho in the late 50s, early 60s. One of them was APM Da, who was a leader of the Youth League, and uh, I've done extensive interviewing with him in the 80s. And the other was Edwin Tabo Mufutsunyana. I, I put the emphasis on Tabo because Govan Mbeki named uh, Tabo Mbeki after him. Uh, but Edwin was living deep up in the mountains. Uh, and so in the late 1970s, when I began this research on a Basutu anti-colonial group called Lechukla Lubafo, uh, I was aware that Mufutsunyana had had contact with them. He was the liaison between the South African Communist Party and this Basutu movement. And so I was very curious to find out if he was still living. And he had left South Africa in 1959. That was the last I knew of him, according to historical records. And so in the late 70s, I started to track him down. And uh, I knew people on the left in uh, Lesotho, and I t was talking with one of them whose father 
had known Mufutsunyana quite well in the 30s and 40s, and he said, well, Mufutsunyana lives way up deep in the mountains. He's still alive. They hadn't heard that he had died, but he was living deep up in the mountains. And so I decided to track him down, and uh, I borrowed uh, someone's uh, Volkswagen Beetle, and on a overcast uh, Saturday afternoon, I just started going up these horse trails uh, uh, from one uh, trading post to another, inquiring after Mufutsunyana. And finally, after uh, uh, I was, the horse trails had gotten narrower and narrower, and I was ready to give up, I got to a place where they had heard of Mufutsunyana, and they said, well, there's this fellow up on the mountainside, up, up yonder, who knows him very well, and it was like the Swiss Alps with people sort of yodeling <laughs> and calling him down from the mountainside. And he came down and I said, and I introduced myself, explained what I was doing. And of course it was, I was hoping that he would lead me to Edwin, but he agreed to take up a letter on horseback to Edwin and, uh, and we would see what the response was. And very fortunately, uh, there was an interesting set of circumstances that uh, uh, sort of opened up the door for interviewing uh, Mufutsunyana. Uh, he was a, a very uh, committed Bolshevik, uh, but he also believed in his dreams. And uh, throughout his life, he had followed his dreams. Uh, and I had sent this note up, and the, the day before he received my note, he had a, a dream in which uh, an old Basudu politician had appeared to him in the dream, and they had gone for a walk in the mountains. Uh, and at the end of the walk, uh, his friend had turned to Edwin and said, uh, very soon a stranger is going to come to you and you must cooperate with him. Well, very fortuitously, my letter showed up the next day, the stranger. And what was interesting was the debate that went on in his village. Uh, many people were saying, well, these are, these, this fellow is South African security branch. He's trying to trick you. These, you know, he's, they're going to kidnap you if, if you come down. Uh, and he said, no, I believe in my dreams. I think this is uh, on the up and up. And so he wrote me this very interesting letter. And we missed each other for a couple of months because of the slowness of mail. But Finally, in 1979, we uh, we hooked up. 1980, actually, uh, we hooked up, and from there we became very good friends over the years. Uh, and uh, he was very forthcoming in, in giving me information. But you know, when you're doing research, oftentimes there's very fortuitous uh, happenings that that take place that open up possibilities for you. And it was quite uh, the coincidence that Mufutsunyana agreed to speak with me because of this dream that he had had. And out of that came your recent biography of him, published in South Africa, and uh, well that's just a, a very interesting example of uh, how a, a skilled historian can uh, uh, can peep into the past and come up with some, but as you say, are also relying on uh, perhaps uh, uh, less scientific uh, routes sometimes, <laughs> in the case, this case, dreams. Well, thanks very much, Bob, for talking to us today. Thanks very much to you all.
Well, that brings another installment of Africa Past and Present to a close. We hope you've enjoyed it. Join us again in two weeks for a new episode. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us an email message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.